Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and you're listening to But That's Another Story from Macmillan Podcasts. Today, I'm going to start with a quote from the autobiography of Malcolm X by Malcolm X with Alex Haley. I learned early that crying out in protest could accomplish things. My older brothers and sister had started in school when sometimes they would come in and ask for a buttered biscuit or something, and my mother impatiently would tell them no. But I would cry out and make a fuss until I got what I wanted. I remember well how my mother asked me why I couldn't be a nice boy like Wilfred, but I would think to myself that Wilfred, for being so nice and quiet, often stayed hungry. So early in life, I had learned that if you want something, you had better make some noise. And recently, I got to talking about speaking up, taking back your own narrative, and spirituality with today's guest. I'm Simranjit Singh, and I am a scholar and an activist. Simranjit Singh is an educator, writer, and activist. He's on the adjunct faculty at Union Theological Seminary. He hosts a podcast called Spirited, that explores the way spirituality informs activism. Simran is the author of a book for journalists on covering the Sikh community and, coming this spring, a children's picture book about the world's oldest marathoner. So I was born in 84. Uh, So growing up was really like the 90s. I mean, you can imagine we're like, we're boys. Uh, Very close in age, so sports was like everything to us. Uh, And if you know anything about San Antonio, you know the real religion there is the Spurs. So we were massive Spurs fans. It was what, right. I don't even know what sport the oh. Spurs are. <laughs> that was basketball. Basketball. Yeah, okay, and it was. Right. It happened to be right when um, one of the best players in the world came to San Antonio, and he was seen widely as a cultural role model. And he was. His name was David Robinson, but he's like a stand-up guy. Did a lot of community service. Really well-spoken. Um, and so our parents were like, yeah, follow those guys, like <laughs> take them as your role models. And we did. I mean, we just sort of fell in love with that team and still are. So that, I mean, I think that was a big part of it. The other thing about the nineties for us, um, for my brothers and me was, you know, there was a great hip hop and R and B music scene coming out in the nineties. And that was also like, for us, like if sports was like living and breathing, uh, hip hop and R and B was like eating. Like you didn't do it as much, but it was still like an important part of your everyday experience. And so, even now, like if I have an hour of free time, first thing that pops up is my nineties, my nineties hip hop music. Hip-hop, yeah, it's, yeah, it's my it's my go to. Was there a uh, significant seat community that you were connected to? Oh no, not at all. I mean, this was part of the strange thing about my parents ending up in Texas. So it's like. Why? Why did you think it'd be a good idea to raise these four kids here? Yeah, so we were we were the only uh, kids in town with turbans. I mean, in all of South Texas that I knew of, um, and so in that sense, it was pretty isolating. I mean, we for the most part, our friends were people in our neighborhood and on our basketball teams and soccer teams. So it was like our friends were black and white and Hispanic mostly because that's what San Antonio is mostly. But it wasn't really the kind of place where I could find someone who knew what I was talking about when I was talking about something that was like really deeply connected to my identity as a Sikh. And that that was strange. Like, you know, I couldn't talk to my parents because they were immigrants. They didn't have 
they didn't grow up in the way that we did. And so I had my brothers, and we would always have each other's backs. But it wasn't like the kind of relationship where we would actually talk through. I mean, now we do. But at the time, we wouldn't talk through, like, anything that might come off as vulnerable. Like, we were, you know, teenager boys in Texas. We were trying to be as masculine as we could. (laughs) (laughs) Simran's parents created a nighttime ritual focused around one particular book. One of the weird things that we would do as a family (laughs) is that we had, my dad had this book called The Book of Virtues. And we would, it was just a book full of like, it was organized by themes, um, themes of virtue. Um, And it was just full of a collection of poems, parables, short stories. And every night we would read out of it as if it was scripture or something. I I, I don't even know. Um, Have you ever... um Revisited the I Book have. of Virtues? Yeah, I have. In the last few years, I've been reading it quite a bit, a bit actually, because I think that for me was quite formative in a way that, you know, I didn't even think about it as interesting when we were kids. Like, they were just stories. Um, but I realized, and I've talked to my father about this, and what he, was, what he would say is, he's just trying to instill values into you. And, like, it doesn't matter if they come from your sick background or something within American history. Like, these are just things that make you a good person. And so... Um, I remember that book pretty fondly now, even though I didn't <laughs> didn't love that ritual as a kid. Were your parents um, readers of, of different kinds of things or not so much? My dad uh, was mostly reading either books on uh, business leadership. He was an entrepreneur, um, and that never has been, you know, my thing. Or he was reading books on spirituality, and that wasn't my thing then, and it's sort of become more interesting to me over the course of my lifetime. My mom actually was an English major when, or did a master's in English when she was living in India. Um, and I never knew she was a reader. I think she was a closeted reader. So she, I mean, I guess she didn't have time with four boys running around yeah. to read. <laughs> yeah, for, for any sort of pleasure reading. Um, but now I see, you know, she loves anything, particularly things that give insight into colonial and post-colonial experiences. And that's a genre that I've come to love over the last decade or so. Uh, So that's something that we share a lot now. I really enjoy that. Now, what was your character like as a kid? How would you describe yourself? Um, One thing that's remained true is um, fun-loving. It was, like, an important part, like, mischievous and, like, really enjoyed just, like, being, being in the world, being present, trying new things. Like, well, let me say it this way. As a kid, through my teenage years, I didn't really find myself um, having much purpose or direction. Like, I just remember I did fine in school, but I didn't care about it at all. Like, I, I would go to class and I would not do my homework and I would pass. I would just pass. And actually, the reason I passed was there was a rule in Texas that if you don't pass, you can't play your sports. So, like, soccer is what kind of kept me in. Is there any particular story of um, a prank, mischief you call, cause something, you're, you're sort of uh, the, the uh, mischievous side of, of yourself as a kid that you recall? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, so one, of, one of the fun things to do in Texas is to flip people's stereotypes back onto themselves in some way. And so one of our favorite things is to, like, walk around San Antonio and talk in a Texas accent. <laughs> and so, like, people are confused. But the even better version of it is to go through a drive-thru. 
So you talk in a Texas accent, you order, and then you get to the window. And then they're like, oh, I don't think this is your order. This is somebody else's. And then you respond in your in your Texas twang. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> so it's like, it's like that kind of thing. It's more entertaining ourselves than it is entertaining anybody else. <laughs> but stereotypes would soon become a dangerous weapon used against Simran and his family. I was a senior in high school. It was 2001. And so September 11th had just hit. Um, and, and that was a big moment for, I mean, all Americans. And it was, for me personally, it felt like, and it still feels like a doubly big moment because on the one hand, attacked as an American, uh, you know, and on the other hand, attacked as someone who looked like the enemy. Um, and, you know, there were violent hate crimes sweeping around the country. In our own home, we sort of we shut down my parents. We went, we got home from school, my brothers and I, and we locked the doors and we stayed in the house for almost a week. Um, and, you know, we had people calling with messages of support, friends and family and neighbors, and we had people calling with racist hate and threats and that sort of thing. So it was like this real tough moment for us. And in that moment, um, one of the things I started realizing was that the people who were the most vulnerable, meaning Muslims, Arabs, South Asians, Sikhs, they didn't really have any access to a microphone. They didn't have a platform. They couldn't tell their own story. And I've had similar experiences like this, and they've made me feel similarly embarrassed that I haven't done more to stand up for myself. This was on a club soccer team. We were traveling, and so when you start going to, into rural parts of Texas, you get more stuff. <laughs> um, and so before the game, we're lining up, and they're checking our equipment. You know, they do a shin guard and cleats check. Um, and then the referee comes over to me, and he says, I need, to, I need to check that rag on your head. I never know what kind of bombs or knives you're hiding under there. So, like, obviously, I was, I was a teenager by the time I knew what he meant and what was going on. Um, but it was one of those situations where the power dynamics were such. I had no idea what to do. I was a kid. Um, and I let him check my, like he felt my turban, like he patted it down and I didn't say anything. Um, and it was, I mean, in, in my tradition, like one of the most offensive things that can happen to you is someone like grabs your turban. Um, and not only was he like, patting me down he was also telling me who he thought I was and so I didn't say anything and um my teammates kind of looked at me and there were other situations where they had kind of followed my lead and got my back in in situations like that in this situation they just sort of looked at me to see if they should say anything and I kind of let it go it would take a good mentor and a timely book recommendation to help Simran find his voice direction and common cause in confronting racism. When we come back from the break, Simran discusses how this one book and an injury would change the direction of his life. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Through the Sikh community, Simran found a family friend to look up to for help with the big questions, like faith, purpose, and doing the right thing. He was a spiritual mentor of mine, but also a life mentor. And I like, I use the word spiritual loosely because I didn't really care so much about spirituality or religion. Um, but he was someone who helped me connect the dots of what I believed and wanted to believe and how I lived and how I wanted to live. Um, so like still greatly indebted to him. I mean, he, he was someone who truly believed and still believes um, in justice as a spiritual practice. Um, and so he taught that to me. I mean, he would give me books, he, we would have conversations, we would talk about um, things that I now would say are probably theological, but like back then we would just be like hanging out and talking. One day, he handed Simran the autobiography of Malcolm X. It was in that moment, I don't think this is why my mentor necessarily recommended it, but one of the first things that really struck me was I had been learning about slavery and Jim Crow and civil rights my entire life. I had never read it from the perspective of a black person. Like, they didn't teach us that in school. And that, I mean, just reading about racism from someone on the other side of racism was like, oh God, like, of course that's his experience because I had a parallel experience. But also, why have I never had a chance to, to access this before? And so that to me was a mind-blowing moment. What changed for you after you read that in terms of what you saw your life, uh, what the direction you saw your life heading? Um. So I'd say it, it transformed me in a few ways. I was so used to seeing our heroes presented as perfect that it gave me a feeling of empowerment to see someone who is flawed. And also someone who worked on his flaws and actually grew over time. I wasn't used to reading about maturation. And not maturation in a, in a way of like, oh, I'm getting older and I like reading the newspaper now instead of reading comic books. It was, it was more like a maturation of going on someone's journey with, with them and seeing their worldview expand in a way that like in his early years, he quite literally saw the world as black and white. I mean, he would talk regularly about the white devil. And that was something that was instilled within him through people that he really admired to the point that like it seemed as you're reading it that there's no way he ever overcomes this. And then to see him at the, end of his, at the end of his life, right? So this is like somebody who's already a massive public figure in American society with huge political influence to have the humility to go and witness the world as he goes on journey to Mecca and sees this diverse group of people and say, oh, you know what? Maybe I was wrong. In these pages, Simran began to find a new direction for his life. As I started to think about what these vulnerable communities in the post-9-11 world needed, I started realizing that maybe dipping into 
academia, scholarship, writing history, writing stories like that could be a powerful avenue for, for equity. And so that's, that was a big transformation for me. He went to college at Trinity University in San Antonio. They had a nationally ranked soccer program. That's, that's the main reason I wanted to go there. But an unfortunate accident would throw off his original plan and allow him to step fully into academia. And I actually injured myself first season, uh, before the season even started, and was totally lost, had no idea of what I would do without soccer. Um, and so I kind of immersed myself in study. I, I took a couple of religion classes and English classes. And I had always loved reading, as I was saying. This was a time when I started to figure out that I love this stuff. I ended up majoring in religion and literature, still had no idea what to do with it. You know, was writing journalism for a bit, thought maybe I'd go into reporting or something like that. And then I, on the off chance, of my advisor um, suggested that I submit an application to Harvard. I thought, <laughs> I don't know anybody who's gone to Harvard, right? Like in, in Texas, in San Antonio, especially in like an immigrant family, like you don't think about that as realistic. Uh, and he was like, no, I think you have a shot. He had gone to Harvard himself. And so I submitted an application. It was the only place I applied, and I got in. I did two years there and then met my wife in Boston. And we ended up getting married, and I moved to New York where she was in medical school. And I started a graduate program at Columbia. And Columbia was the home of Edward Said. It was in this class that Simran would come across Edward Said's groundbreaking book, Orientalism. The reason it blew my mind was because up until this point, when it came to understanding myself as a racialized being, it had always been through the lens of blackness. Like, nobody ever talked about brownness. And when people talked about brown people, they were either talking about Latinx folks or they were talking about Muslims and Arabs in the post-9-11 America. And I wasn't either of those, and I didn't really identify much with either of those, uh, although I have increasingly done so over the years. But at the time, like, it, it just didn't speak to me. And so I would find parallels in, in something like Malcolm X and be like, oh, the people burning down their house and the racist stuff, as teacher said, like, that reminds me of me. Could you sort of describe for, for listeners who might be less familiar with the book, you know, what you recall of, of its thesis, but also what resonated most strongly with you uh, from the book? Yeah, sure. Um, so Orientalism describes how scholars started to go east and study different communities and what they came to learn, quote unquote, about these communities. Um, and then what people in Western Europe, and then globally um, started to understand, whether correctly or incorrectly, how they came to understand these people. Um, and, and one of the things he says is, like, these things sort of mutually reinforce one another, and it it's simultaneously imagined. Like, it's not necessarily accurate, but because people believe it to be accurate, then it becomes a real part of your experience. When we live in a world where we say, in the Baconian sense, that knowledge is power, and then you produce this power by saying that 
Western Europe has exclusive right to objectivity, right? Like, so part of part of what colonialism did was to say, we have access to science and we're better than other people because they don't have science. We're objective and they're not. So they, they can't tell you their stories because you can't trust them. They're too biased. But we can tell you their stories and we can tell you our own stories too. And of course, my experience as someone who's trying to um, study and give voice to marginalized communities is being rejected by others in the field and others widely as being too biased, right? They're saying like, oh, you're a Sikh. How can you teach Sikhism? I mean, I don't even teach Sikhism because that's uh, not <laughs> – nobody teaches Sikhism in this country. Um, but they'll be like, oh, you're a, you're a brown person who experiences – Islamophobia, how can you talk about Islamophobia? It's like, who else is going to talk about it if it's not me, right? So anyway, it's this weird sort of situation we've created, and I never really was able to connect the dots and understand how that was happening until I encountered Edward Said's book. He takes from the autobiography of Malcolm X and Orientalism lessons in humility, intellectual rigor, and mission. It is striking when I go back to Punjab and people see me with my turban and they learn that I research, I do research on Sikh history and things like that. And they're like, well, why do you care? Like you're, <laughs> you already, yeah, you already made it out. And it's, to me, it's like, it's not like, it's, it's like I want to go back in. There's, there's a couple of sort of, uh, questions that, that I like to ask. It's, it's a little bit of a, a lightning round. Mm, sure. <laughs> um, and they're, they're slightly more frivolous, but, but not, not entirely. Okay. Um, so if you're game? I'm game, yeah. All right. Uh, I'd love to know what your uh, favorite library is. Uh, favorite library is uh, <laughs> um, oh, the Widener Library at Harvard. Just most amazing collection I've ever seen. Get lost, get completely lost and like don't even know what time it is. Yeah, it's incredible. And uh, what is your favorite place to read? I like in our building, we have a, a room that has, it has a couch, it's closed off, there's no noise. And then you just sort of take a cup of tea and you just read on your own. So, like, for me, the isolation is, is key and to get away in New York City, like, that's, yeah, that's the dream. Uh, where do you do your writing scholarship, researching? Uh, coffee shops, yeah, which is the opposite of where I read. But uh, <laughs> I, I need to be in coffee shops or else I, 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 I need the activation of people and I feed off the energy. So, yeah, I'm constantly nibbling on something and, and watching other people move around as I'm thinking. It keeps me, keeps me active. Terrific. And... Uh, character in a book you most identify with? Mm. That's a tough one. Um, okay, this is a lame answer. I've been reading a lot of children's books with my daughter, and we've been into the Gruffalo recently, and it's about a, a mouse that tricks everybody into thinking it's the most terrifying beast in the in the uh, in the woods, and so nobody attacks it, and that's that's how I feel sometimes. Like it's the <laughs> it's the imposter syndrome to the max. <laughs> but that's another story. Is produced by Christy Westgard. Thanks to Simran Jeet Singh. If you'd like to learn more about the books we've mentioned in this week's episode. 
you can find out more in our show notes. You can also find a transcript of this episode and past ones on LitHub. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. There's a book that changed your life. We want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstory at macmillan.com. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.